Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There is a Star Wars reference in the script. Was that in it before your was that in it before your participation or was that added as a wink afterwards? No, nah, it was always in it. It was always in it. And I was like, is that like, should I have a nah, whatever. It's cool. And then like, <laughs> <laughs> it just stayed in. It just stayed in. But people, people, people liked it in the festivals. I was like, wow, well, okay, cool. Yeah, they like a little, little, little Star Wars reference over there. It's kind of cool. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's Editor-in-Chief, Patrick Gomez, and being that this is Thanksgiving, we're doing things a little different this week. Instead of a staff chat to kick things off, we've doubled your pleasure and doubled your fun, hopefully, with uh, two interviews. Fresh off of speaking to his The Night Of co-star, John Turturro, on last week's episode, today we're going to be hearing from Sound of Metal star Riz Ahmed. And then we'll chat with Star Wars alum John Boyega, who stars in the Steve McQueen film anthology series Small Axe's upcoming installment, Red, White, and Blue. Joining me now is the AV Club's executive producer of audio and video initiatives, Mara Eakin. Thanks for joining, Mara. Uh, So you recently got to speak with Riz and check out his new film, Sound of Metal, right? Yes, and I really loved Sound of Metal, and I really loved talking to Riz. It's fantastic. Well, So tell us a little bit about what Sound of Metal is before we hear your discussion with him. So Sound of Metal is sort of billed as heavy metal drummer loses his sense of hearing and is thrown into this free fall where he doesn't know who he is. But I mean, in reality, like the hearing loss is such a huge part of the movie and it's such a huge, the sound design is all affected by it. You're hearing what he's hearing. You're hearing it fade in and out. And also you're sort of talking about identity, which is honestly something that Riz and I talked about related to COVID as well. Like when things are taken away from you, in this case, his hearing, his livelihood, his girlfriend, you realize who you've really become and like who you actually really are as a person. And, or you have to figure that out. And that's what we talked about. And, and, and I think it's a really amazing movie. And um, I think there's a lot of Oscar buzz around him. And I think it's well-deserved. Well, perfect. Well, let's get right to it. Uh, here is Mara's chat with Riz Ahmed. The movie is about hearing loss but it's also sort of about Ruben's sudden loss of like identity everything he thinks he is like a drummer a boyfriend a musician or whatever is taken away from him almost overnight who do you think that Ruben really is like having spent some time with him as a character Hmm. you know that's such a great question because I don't think I don't know if we ever arrive at a definitive answer of who we really are but I think we get take steps closer and closer to stripping away the external things that we think define us, you know, or at least stripping away our attachment to them. And in that way, you know, look, Ruben thinks, as you said, I'm this kind of guy. I'm in a relationship. I live in a camp, uh, in a mobile home and I play the drums. That's me. I'm not a deaf person living in a sober house that's single. That's the opposite of who I am. And yet over the course of going through that journey, he, he arguably gets more in touch with who he is. And sometimes the things that we cling on to to give us an identity are actually getting in the way 
of who we really are. You know, I think that there's a lot of scars, a lot of wounds uh, in Ruben that he's been papering over with the band-aids of a relationship and an obsessive focus on drumming, just as he had an obsessive kind of, you know, drug addiction in the past. And I think that it's actually staying busy and doing and having purpose is just another way of running away from himself. So it's actually sitting in the silence, facing the void where you face yourself. And I'm not sure if he can put into words or I can put into words who he really is, but I like to think that at our core, we're all pretty much the same, you know, underneath or underneath it all, there's a core of humanity that we all share. It's interesting because he went through something pretty singular here, but like in my mind, there's some parallel with what's happened to a lot of people with COVID in the sense that like, oh, I used to hang out with my friends. My job is this, that's me. Like, and how that all got taken away from a lot of people really fast. And now people are trying to kind of figure out what, who they are Mm. and what they do. Yes. Yes. hundred percent. I was thinking that myself, you know, it was like, it's kind of wild in a way, but I think people will be able to relate to that journey of like the things I thought defined me, the things I thought gave me worth be, you know, been stripped away. Now, who am I? And, you know, that's really challenging and that's really tragic. And there's real loss that comes in that kind of like change of circumstance. There can also be a, a gift hidden inside it. If we are able to embrace it and move past those challenges you know, it's so hard for people who've lost their living, lost lost loved ones. I don't mean to suggest that like, oh, great, this is like an enforced spirituality retreat for everyone. No, like COVID is, is real and it's, you know, it, it's destroyed families, communities and livelihoods. I guess for, on a macro level as a society, I hope it's an opportunity for us all to think about, all right, what are we doing? What really matters? And that's what happens when you face a crisis. That's what happens in times of uh, uncertainty. You're forced to reassess what you're doing with your life. And I hope that that's partly what, you know, that's certainly something Ruben's forced to do. I hope that's what society does. And I hope in a small way that people who watch this film also walk away asking some questions about, huh, what really mattered to me if it all changed, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the holidays, that's like a whole can of worms, but um. Something that really staggered me watching this movie in relation to hearing loss was the cochlear implant, like hearing what it actually sounds like to hear from that. I thought was very, you know, you see these videos of like babies hearing their moms and you just imagine they're hearing a certain way and that that's not really how people are hearing. What in terms of hearing loss, like was really staggering to you? Like I'm imagining you learned a lot. I did learn a lot. Um, You know, it was, I'm grateful to everyone who taught me a lot. I remember sitting next to someone on a plane with a cochlear implant who just got into a two-hour conversation with him about it. And he, you know, and he talked told me about getting his implant was the worst day of his life um, because of what he was expecting. And we had I remember speaking to other people who were like, this was the best day of my life. Um, there is no one deaf experience, there's no one deaf community. I guess I just had to try and hone in on, you know, some of the research and some of the stories and some of the experiences that I was able to immerse myself in and then just try and be honest uh, about where Ruben's head would be at with all of this stuff you know is someone who's always looking for a quick fix looking for more looking to do I'm not sure they would be enough for him you know that implant and 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 for many people it works and for many people it doesn't you know it's a it's a very controversial issue within the deaf community but I think it, it was just more than anything for me if I'm honest it was just a tremendous learning experience you know learning about the richness and expansiveness and variety of this culture that 
has so much to offer us in the hearing community if only we would stop living in such a segregated way with deaf people yeah even in the film like where they live is like way out <laughs> the sticks you know like it's there's no interaction there's very little interaction there between the deaf community and the hearing community i guess um you mentioned that ruben is like always humming doing working do you have that quality like are you always busy busy and then did this movie make you slow down at all you know certainly it's something that really drew me to the character i was like, i recognize this dude he like defines himself for his work and he's always on the go and i've also experienced those moments of like being forced to stop for various reasons personal reasons health reasons financial reasons thinking can i continue doing the thing i love you know and those moments were terrifying because they make you think well then who am i and i was like i recognize that feeling and i want to go deeper into it at the end of this I guess what um, of the process of making this film, something that I feel now is, you know, I'm trying to kind of realize that sometimes constantly running towards a goal is just a way of running away from yourself, you know? And, um, and I guess what I'm trying to do a bit more is stay out of goal-oriented doing, you know, this performance has to be like this. I want this song to perform like that. And I want, and kind of thinking more about like, how can I tap into where I'm at right now and just share a bit of that kind of a bit more connected doing rather than escapist doing? Um, it's not always easy and some days are better than others, but I feel like when I do manage to tap into that, things are just better. Speaking of songs, <laughs> you know, I guess I was wondering about Black Gammon's influences. I was like, are they a metal band? Are they a noise band? Is it like a, is it like a the locust or uh, you know <laughs> lightning bolt or whatever? Did they give you sort of like a playlist of like here's the kind of stuff that Black Am would be into? We, we, yeah, we kind of um, yeah we kind of like immersed ourselves a little bit in that scene. So Olivia was mentored by Pharmacon, who's an amazing artist, the kind of noise artist. I was mentored by Sean, the drummer from Surfboards, which is a punk band. I interviewed a bunch of other kind of metal bands and experimental noise bands and, and hung out with them. You know, Kill Alters is a band that I was kind of very much into. I thought they were a cool template for us. But Surfboard and Pharmacon, somewhere where those two meet, was kind of like where where our band existed. And and yeah, it was similar to like being immersed in the deaf community, being immersed into that community, which one I hadn't been into was such a gift, you know, just meeting those incredibly creative sensitive souls and again like you know the idea of tribe can separate us so much from people i always thought you know i'm like person of color from like you know a city setting in in london who raps and like i didn't know anything about this experience of like you know noise bands and punk and i hadn't been around that and to connect with people in that scene was just joyous and again just teaching me the lesson that ruben learns that i think a lot of us need to learn right now is like we think we're all so different and we're trapped up in our identities and our identity politics and it's kind of bullshit, you know? We're, we're, we're the same. It's really interesting to hear your discussion, Mara, with him about identity and how much he feels that, like, the deaf community isn't a monolith, too. I thought that was a really interesting element of your discussion uh, and kind of how he had to just latch on to the, the bits of it that he felt identified with the character because you can't really take on a community like the deaf community as though it's, as though it's all the same. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. Uh, I mean, you'd, you'd say that about the gay community, uh, any sort of like marginalized, you know, community. Mm-hmm. So I think that he learned that very smartly and, and approached that very smartly. Having yeah. so many um, deaf actors in the movie, I think, probably helped a lot, too. Oh, of course. I mean, you know, you know, making sure that there's not just one representative of, of any sort of communities is important. And actually, that's a little bit of what I spoke to with John Boyega for his new Small Axe installment, Red, White, and Blue, in that he actually stars as the real-life trailblazer Leroy Logan, who became one of the first people of color to join London's police force in the 1980s. And, you know, this this uh, Small Axe is a whole anthology film series from Steve McQueen speaking to the kind of Black Caribbean experience in London throughout the UK's history. And uh, it, it's super interesting. And so we chatted all about that, uh, as well as how the piece kind of aligns with John's real life activism. You know, we've seen him make headlines regarding how he feels the Star Wars franchise dealt with their characters of color in this most recent trilogy, as well as his voice was was well heard during all the protests this past summer with the Black Lives Matter movement. So this was a piece that was really um really close to his heart and gave him a great opportunity to move on past the Star Wars trilogy. But still, if we get to it a little bit, there's I don't want to spoil it for anyone, um, but there's a little bit of a Star Wars wink in the in the film. And we talk a little bit about that and how that came to be. So uh, without further ado, here is my chat with John Boyega. Thanks so much for joining us, John. It's I'm still getting a little used to doing these uh, remotely. I, I'd love to be able to do these in person. How has this adjustment been for you? Uh, and I'm sure you had a very whirlwind end of 2019 to head right into the pandemic with everything shut down. What, what's that experience been like for you this year? It's just been a very huge transition as it's been for a lot of people who I think um, being at home and, and, and having to quarantine for so long and then making these adjustments has been so mad. Um, it's been highs, it's been lows, but, you know, I can't complain in comparison, you know. I'm 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 good, but it's just about you know the mystery of of what's next. And I just wonder what else could this year possibly dish us. So it's it's, it's been it's been all right, but we're just getting through it. Just getting through. It. Yeah. Well, um, now of course you're promoting small acts, uh, which you've got coming up. And John, you would not be familiar with this, but subscribers to the podcast would know that we uh, actually had our film reviewer, A. Dowd, come on and discuss his five favorite projects that he saw at the New York Film Festival recently. And Small Axe was among those. So we're super excited that more people are going to be able to see it. And I could describe what Small Axe is, but I'm going to punt that over to you, John, to kind of give us a synopsis of what, what these five episodes of this anthology are about. Yeah, I mean, I, I see them as five films, uh, just just because of, of of the quality and what Steve has done with this. But essentially, it's five films that, that goes into the experiences of, of of Black Caribbean people in the UK through various obstacles and and, and challenges in in a London that, and in a Britain that's not necessarily ready for their kind of representation. There's love in there. There's there's an exploration of of social divide, family dynamics change. In my specific film, Red, White, and Blue. Um, I play Leroy Logan, who is a police of, uh, scientist turned police officer who wants to go into an institution and obviously change it from the inside. And that stands as one of the biggest challenges of his life. And Small Axe, really, in, in its strange, unique format created by Steve McQueen, joins all these different stories together to give us just a, a really, really good dynamic insight into, you know, British history. 
And I know Steve McQueen first announced the project back in 2014, uh, but we didn't get your casting announcement until last year in 2019. Why, at what point did you become a part of the project? Did you become aware of the project? Did it become something you wanted to do? Um, literally, as soon as they were done, I think they, they approached me, you know, being a few months out of, of, of shooting and they were ready to go. And I, that's the first time I'm hearing. I didn't know. I have no idea that um, Steve mentioned it in 2014. But when Steve approached me, I had just done with the franchise. So I was like, this is perfect. You know, I've, just, I've been looking for something to, to do. I'm at the crossroads now when it's kind of like, what's next? And the healthiest thing for me to do is definitely to um, be a part of something and, and partner up with somebody that I definitely creatively trust. And so it was, it was definitely a no-brainer for me. You are somebody, speaking your character, you said, tries to enter something and change something from the inside. You yourself have been very outspoken in terms of fighting for racial equality and against injustice all over the globe. How much of that played into your desire to be a part of this project specifically? And do you feel like you learned as an advocate and, and voice, do you feel like you learned anything by, by doing this? I think that this, this was a story for me that I just want, I, I wanted to see told. Like I was just, I wanted to be a part of, of, I wanted to be the artist who presented you the story. I wanted you, I wanted to play the guy that, that you, you as an audience have to understand and, and, and follow. And for me, because this was done, you know, before the protests or before any of, of the stuff that's gone down, before even we went to lockdown, you know, it, it was a, a time for us to reflect on the conversations that were bubbling and issues that was, were still, you know, apparent. And the fact that whenever you bring out these type of films, it always seems to be timeless. You know, and and having to deal with that with that reality, so um, it was it was an interesting process with all of it. Tell the listeners a little bit more about Logan and uh, Red, White, and Blue, and kind of the journey that he goes on. Yeah, you know, Leroy Logan starts off as a scientist, uh, baby on the way, very full family, a father that loves him, mother that cherishes him, and a great educator, somebody that is prominent in his field and is doing quite well. And because of the changes in his community, he decides that he's of better use by fighting for representation within the police force. And he puts himself in that position, first off, as his strategy. He joins and then is obviously met with institutional racism and has to navigate this very, very toxic space. And this film just really dwells into the challenges of that and the day-to-day conflicts that come with this, you know, being a Black man joining the Met at the time, the Met didn't necessarily have the greatest race relationships with their with their black civilians you were seen as a traitor or a judas and and you can see in the scenes in the, in, in the film he's called this several different times and those conflicts are are also explored in this as well finally we don't see the officers as kind of like ghoulish bodies in uniforms with no identity we go into one officer's strategy to try and change things and, and we try and experience his frustrations there's a moment in which a character tells your character, you know, this isn't like the States where they have a bunch of Black officers already. And it's it's just interesting as an American watching this project for them to to say like, hey, like at least from the outside, it looks like they've got this going on a little bit better over there at the time. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting to, interesting to know that there was, that was their perspective as well, especially when talking to Leroy, you know, just to see from looking from the outside in, it was like, yo, we need that representation. As he says, to his, his mate is just like, you know, if I was in the police force, do you believe I'll drape you up? Do you think I'd mess you up if I was there? And to, and to see that and to understand that Leroy found that to be 
a very, very serious issue that could possibly lead to more discrimination. For him to put himself in a line like that and to put himself in a position where he said goodbye to a prospect that was quite healthy for him. You know, scientists, it's good, good money. That's a, a very brave thing to do. It is. Uh, emotionally, you do have to go to some very dark places while it, your character has to go to some pretty dark places j- during the episode because of the color of his skin. Uh, both, he's tr- like you said, he's treated, he's treated uh, as an outsider, both in his community and at work because of his choices. That can be an easy mental state to stay in as an, as an actor for a prolonged period of time. But something that really struck me watching it is that is how many people of color experience life. Uh, on a day-to-day basis is that fear and pressure that you get from code switching and from being, you know, maybe the only one like you in the room. Talk to us a little bit about getting into that space and get also living in that space as, as just John. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you definitely transfer um, some experiences, some feelings from your own personal day-to-day experience into the, into the role, but the intensity of, of Leroy's time, the intensity of being one of the founding fathers of representation within the UK, man, is is different, and 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 there's some travelling to do, as I like to call it. And emotionally, it's quite it's quite draining to see that he was always navigating such a space that wasn't welcoming. You know, before we're put into positions on set, you know, most of the other police officers would be in their big groups. You know, about five or six of them feeling like they had a um, a sense of. Of, of, of partnership with each other. And while the, the officers of color would be on the other side of the room just by themselves and quite isolated and not, not really supported. And to actually sit, live and breathe in those situations, you know, I don't know how Leroy had done it because if, if it was me, every scene, you're seeing the AK. <laughs> every scene. But Leroy is just controlled and, and knows that there's a strategy, knows that there's there's a goal that he's working towards and and keeps that as, as the centerpiece of his decision making. As as much as we've been concentrating on the on the very dark periods of the film, there are there are light moments uh, and I want to get to some of the music in a minute, but one of them that is definitely a wink to the audience is there there is, I don't want to spoil exactly what it is, but there is a Star Wars reference in the script. Was that yeah. in it before your was that in it before your participation or was that added as a wink afterwards? No, nah, it was always in it. It was always in it. And I was like, is that like should I have a nah, whatever. It's cool. And then like, <laughs> <laughs> it just stayed in. It just stayed in. But people, people, people liked it at the festivals. I was like, wow, okay, cool. Yeah, they like a little, little, little Star Wars reference over there. It's kind of cool. You referenced, uh, you know, looking for your project after filming the trilogy. Compare and contrast to me working on a, like, you know, massive blockbuster budget action film like those and then getting to kind of do a quieter project like this one. Do you tackle that any differently as an actor? And what is that experience like for you? And were you looking for something that was very, very, very different when you were leaving the trilogy? No, definitely. I was just, con- I, I think for me, I was just continuing what I've always wanted to do. I mean, I remember, I think it was between episode eight and nine, I did D- Detroit. And I just wanted, I just like doing, I just like being things I like to watch. And I like to watch all types of shit. So for me, it was a, a great opportunity to just step into versatility a bit, run in the opposite direction, offer offer something different to the audience, you know, and at the same time, be a part of a story that I felt gave me the opportunity to film from home, 
you know, use use my own accent ish, you know, but use an accent that I'm 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 quite um I'm quite used to and just to feel that that sense of artistry and, and work that you get from working with Steve McQueen. This is a, a very timely piece, but it is a period piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, your character loves Motown music and we get some great moments of him uh, enjoying music in the car and dancing and that kind of stuff. Uh, were you a fan of music of that era? And if not, did you discover any any music that you now have taken on to, to your uh, daily life? Yeah, Mo- Motown definitely. I've actually I've actually been to to Motown and and been to the Usher Studios. They used to they used to record while I was doing some press for Detroit in Detroit. And 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 for me, I've always been a fan of that type of music. But to me, the 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 surprising one was the UK jazz funk. I was like, wait, I didn't even know that was going down. Um, I think in the in the scene where he's having a dance with. With Lenny, he has to these in leather pants, and we had to learn a, a few of a few of those dance moves. Um, let's just say it was a very liberating experience. Because you are an advocate, and you were active in the protests, and and really have been using your voice to make sure that progress is being made. How freeing is it to have a project that allows you to do that, both in your art as well as in your promotion? You know, getting to talk about those subject matters now. Yeah, it's, it's 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 mad, you know, to to have that. Obviously, now if you if you do any kind of socially conscious project, people feel like you know maybe you met a director at the protest and that's why you got it. But what's great is that to know obviously that Red, White, and Blue filmed prior, and to know that it's always been a, a passion of mine. Um, but to see it reflect in reality, it is cool. It is cool. I guess it's also weird. It's also quite. It's also very. It's also very, very strange. Um, it's very strange. It's very strange to do that because now you probably are looking at scenes and we could look at scenes in, in scripts that we're looking at and being like, well, that kind of looks like, you know, it's too close to what's happening in reality. And it's like, cannot believe now that reality is that dramatic, you know? So it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, interesting sync, I say. It certainly shows us how far we've come, but also how little, Right, right. I think you all do a fantastic job of portraying the culture of your character's family and really giving a voice to their experience. What was it like to get to work on this project? Because there are often projects in which uh, I'm sure you show up and you are one of the few people of color, uh, both in front of and behind the camera. And in this project, that was not the case. Yeah, yeah. It was great. It was great to, to know that and to network several people who know other individuals that I've worked with also in industry and we were, we were, it was great to really just connect. But obviously what was important to me also was the conversation that it sparked up. I met um, a guy who I think he was grip. Um, and he let me know about his experiences being in the Met in the seventies and how he, he worked at a, a station in London and because of their innate racism and because he, was kind of like titled as the the local little snitch, you know, who who just didn't like what they were doing. He he left and and he was telling me how it was, it, it was important being on set, seeing this kind of story conveyed. And I was there on set. It was actually when we done the the, the reshoots in Wolverhampton, and I was just there shots like, mate, that's that's so crazy. And he goes, yeah. And now I'm working on this. Like I'm seeing how the Bobby's dressed. Like I'm it's bringing him memories, but also there's a pain there of his experience of then having to leave that environment, an environment that he actually wanted to be a part of. 
that's really powerful. And I'm so glad he got that experience and that you got to know the impact that this project is going to have on people. Speaking of that, what do you hope people take away from Red, White and Blue? I think it's just, it's, it's, it's such an education. I think, it, uh, as I said before, it's a perspective that we, we, have a, we don't have a lot of content on this. And it's just an exp- the, the expression of creativity coming from Steve McQueen is, is very special. You know, these were scenes that were, we fought hard to convey truth in these scenes. And, and, and if there wasn't any truth conveyed in it, we weren't going we to shoot it. You know, we, we had to get it before each, each and every given day. So I feel like the passion that reads off this project will definitely you know, help guide people in the conversations that they need to have, the research that they need to do to see that these issues are still continuous, but to then be inspired by individuals like Leroy Logan, who has a definitely a positive strategy in terms of just maneuvering and navigating such a negative space. I can't emphasize enough how much people should check out Small Acts. It's it's five 90-minute films, basically, uh, each one very different, um, but thematically all linked by covering the same general themes. And John's is is actually uh, just one of the five. He's not in any of the other episodes, but they're all worth checking out. Um, and that's available on Amazon Prime beginning December 4th, uh, which is the same day that you can check out Riz Ahmed in the film Sound of Metal on Amazon Prime. So Amazon Prime, I guess this was your episode. We didn't plan it that way, but you can give us money if you want. Um, Mara, They're coming in hot uh, from the holiday we, season. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, Mara, uh, before we wrap things up, where can people find you on social media? Uh, I am on Twitter at, at Mara E, M-A-R-A-H-E. All right. And you can find me at Patrick Gomez LA. And that's going to do it for this Thanksgiving edition of Push the Envelope. We will be back next Thursday, as we always are, with new episodes. Uh, Until then, please remember to rate, comment, and subscribe. Uh, But that's going to do it for us for now. Uh, Until next week, bye. Bye. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.